Hello and welcome, my faithful and loyal readers and listeners. <coughs> welcome to our Daily Bell Show for June the 2nd. Also, if you will recall, our Daily Bell Shows are divided into two different segments. We have our Verse of the Day segment, and we have our Through the Bible in one year segment. <coughs> so our verse for the second comes from Luke chapter 6 verse 36. But in order to understand the context of that verse, we've got to back all the way back up and start in Luke chapter 6 verse 27. section says, it says, but to you who are listening, I say love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, pray for those who mistreat you, if someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to them the other also, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them, give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. <coughs> if you love those who are with you, credit is that to you. Even sinners love those who love them. If you do, do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners do that. <coughs> if you lend to those from whom you expect repayment, what credit is that to you? Even sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. But love your enemies, do good to them, and lend to them without expecting to get anything back. Then your reward will be great, and you will be children of the Most High, because He is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So in these verses, in these about ten verses, <coughs> Jesus defines how his disciples should respond to their enemies. So they are treated with hate, they are commanded, excuse me, to love their enemies. Uh, three steps. Thirty-one, which say, right? 
If someone slaps you on one cheek, turn to the other. Also, if someone takes your coat, do not withhold your shirt from them. Give to everyone who asks you, and if anyone takes what belongs to you, do not demand it back. Do to others as you would have them do to you. So Jesus followers, those of us that are his followers today are to continue in loving ministry, even in place of persecution. So in line of the variety of responses to opposition that you see elsewhere in Luke's book, his follow-on book, the book of Acts. <coughs> These illustrations are meant to convey an overarching desire for the good of opponents that does preclude, for example, insisting on legal procedures, warning of God's judgment, and continuing to witness now we're going to come to this last little small section of this. So we'll start in verse 32 and go to verse 44. Verse 34 says, He says, If you love those who love you, what credit is that to you? Even sinners love those who love them. If you do good to those who are good to you, what credit is that to you? And sinners do that. Sinners lend to sinners expecting to be repaid in full. So in those three short in those three verses, Jesus provides three negative examples of the kind of love that he is not talking about here. But that are character but that is characteristic of sinners. So in this context Sinners are those who are oriented towards self and who do not reflect the character of God. So, in contrast, Jesus exhorts his disciples and do good to their enemies and to lend without expecting anything in return. So, Jesus is telling his disciples, do this instead of this. Don't love those. something to somebody, if you're going to lend something to somebody, don't lend to the person, just to the person that can pay you back, because that's not really doing a good deed, that's just being smart business people, but doing a good deed will be giving to someone who has no possibility of ever, ever, ever paying you back. So as with verses 20 through Seers of great reward to come. So, in the immediate context, this is another way of referring to God's favorable response. Love like this. Just how this verse ends up. Just how this section ends up. Are evidently in children of the most time. Because this kind of love reflects God's care. Good to them and lend to them, expecting to get anything back. 
children of the Most High, because he is kind to the ungrateful and wicked. Be merciful, just as your Father is merciful. So your readings for June the 2nd are 7, chapter 19, verse 11, through chapter 20, verse 13, John chapter 21, Psalm 120, verses 1 through 7. In Proverbs 16, 16 through 17. So that concludes our verse of the day segment. Now we will be moving into or through the Bible in one year segment for June 2nd. very short section of John chapter 12. Why I'm describing this thing as being interesting. So let's start by that. We're going to start in verse 1 and go through verse 3 for right now. Which says, Six days before Passover, Jesus came to Bethany, where Lazarus lived. Jesus had raised from the dead. Here a dinner was given in Jesus' honor. Martha served while Lazarus was among those reclining at the table with him. Then Mary took about a pint of pure nard, an expensive perfume. She poured it on Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair. And the house was filled with the fragrance of the perfume. So what we see is that Jesus left Ephraim and arrived in Bethany about six days before the Passover. So the last time Jesus had been in the village of Bethany, he had raised all from it. <coughs> and the setting was a dinner celebrating his arrival. Mary 
an expensive perfume bottle with great humility anointed Jesus' feet and wiped his feet with her hair and the beautiful fragrance of this perfume would have filled the entire home. So now let's deal with the issue that you should automatically see and arise out of these first three verses. And the issue is the time of Jesus' death. So what I'm talking about is traditionally the dating of Easter, which would be the day that Jesus raised from the dead. Prior to the Council of Nicaea, you gotta understand that. Because we date Easter very differently now than what it was dated. What we're gonna call early, early, early church history. What we call early, early church history. Was given as the first Sunday after Passover week. So, Passover week was started on Saturday. So, the very next Sunday after that would have been Easter Sunday. You following so far? As we see here, John is telling us that the events of Holy Week took place in the week before Passover, which would mean that Easter Sunday occurred on the first day of Passover week, not the day after the end of Passover week. Are you following so far? So the issue here is which date is correct. Does it really matter in the long run which dating method is correct? Answer to which method of dating correct is very simple. We don't know and we won't ever know until we get to heaven and by that point in time it will not matter at all whether or not the events leading up to this took place a week before Passover or the events leading up to Jesus' death took place during Passover week. Because by then, we won't be arguing about that. There'll be other things on our mind by that point in time. And the answer to the simple question we've already answered is it really doesn't matter in the long run. Because we weren't on the planning committee. We weren't involved in any of the planning involved with this. So why does it matter when this event took place? Because, you see, it, the, the timing doesn't really change the importance and the significance of Jesus' death, burial, and resurrection. It doesn't change that significance at all. So now let's move on. Let's pick up in verse 4 and go through verse 6. But one of his disciples, Judas Iscariot, who was later to betray him, objected. Why wasn't this perfume sold and the money given to the poor? It was worth a year's wages. 
He did not say this because he cared about the poor, but because he was a thief. As keeper of the money bag, he used to keep, he used to help himself to what was put into it. Hmm. So what we see here is that John's narration of this event, John's narration of this event, contrasts and with Judas's greed. So Mary's actions demonstrate expect to express her love for Jesus. So the perfume that she poured on his feet was worth about a year's wage for a common laborer. So that was worth a lot of money, even back then. It was not something that you would waste even back then. And it's not something that well, we might waste today because, well, we're a little bit more senseless in how we spent our money. But back then, this was not something that you would just waste. For you to pour something out that was worth this much was a sign that you were absolutely devoted to the person that you were pouring this perfume at their feet. So what we see is that Jesus, on the other hand, was concerned with the financial loss. But he wasn't concerned about the financial loss for the reason that he gives, because he says, um, it could, it could have been sold and the money given to the poor, so why wasn't it sold and the money given to the poor? Jesus didn't care about the poor. Jesus could not have cared less that his perfume might have been sold and the money given to the poor. So they could buy bread, they could buy food, they could buy clothing, they could be buy housing, they could buy things that they needed. Judas didn't care about that. Judas wanted the money put into the collective pot for the disciples. So that he could steal it, because he was the treasurer of this group, and as the treasurer of this group, he had access to the money. And Judas's heart was already not in the right place, because John says he was a thief. John would have known he was a thief. John was in the inner circle. You follow me so far? So now let's pick up in verse seven. Which says, leave her alone, Jesus replied. It was intended that she should save this perfume for the day of my burial. You will always have the poor among you, but you will not always have me. You will always have the poor with you, poor among you, but you will not always have me. What we're seeing here is Jesus defending Mary against Judas' derision. <coughs> that Jesus' words indicate that Mary's act was of more significant time. Her act of sacrificial devotion symbolizes symbolized Jesus' coming burial. Jesus' reference to the poor did not imply that he had no concern for them. 
Don't you see, his entire life and his teaching proved that he had deep love and concern for the f for the poor. And we're gonna circle back around to all of this when we finish up going over the basic details. So now let's finish this section starting at verse 9. Going to the end, which will be verse 11. Meanwhile, a large crowd of Jews found out that Jesus was there and came not only because of him, but also to see Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. So the chief priest made plans to kill Lazarus as well. For on account of him, many of the Jews were going over to Jesus and believing in him. So what we see here is that a large crowd gathered, waiting, wanting to see not only Jesus, but also Lazarus, whom he had raised from the dead. Because you see, Lazarus had become a celebrity in his own right. And it was his popular, Lazarus' popularity, that led the priest to determine that he too would have to be killed. So now that we have a basic understanding, Verses of John chapter 12. Let's dig a little bit deeper into this section. And so, not that we must answer four big questions. So, the first one we have to answer was pouring perfume on a person's feet. The customer in was the perfume. The third question was why was the perfume intended for Jesus' burial? And the fourth and final question is, why not give to help the poor? So, question number one is, why uh, was pouring perfume on a feet a customary ritual? So, to answer that, we have to understand a little bit about hostility in the ancient Middle Eastern world. So, hospitality in the ancient Middle Eastern world called for the washing of but not a pouring of perfume on the feet. <coughs> so washing travelers' feet after they had walked hot, dusty roads and sandals soothed and freshened them for their visit. So it was also customary to anoint an honored guest, not their feet. Another woman on a different occasion that you see on Luke chapter 7, verses 37 through 38. Anointing Jesus' feet, perhaps because she felt unworthy to anoint his head. Further, Mary's act of devotion showed her, showed her humility for a servant to anoint feet, do anything at all with feet clean feet, anoint feet, whatever it was you were doing with a person's feet, a servant's work, because feet were nasty and dirty in that day, just as they are nasty and dirty in today. So in both of the cases, the case that you see over in Luke's Gospel, and the case that you now see here in John's Gospel, the women recognize the righteous nature of Christ, their own sinfulness and sought Jesus' 
come to question number two. So how expensive was this perfume that Mary poured on Jesus' feet? So we know already that the perfume was very, very expensive. As we see that Judas says that it was worth a year's wages. <coughs> so it was more than likely imported from outside the region. And so we see that John notes that it was pure nard, which gave it an added value. And we also see that Judas complained about Mary's extravagant waste because it was equivalent because it was the equivalent to the annual income of a laborer. So this perfume was really, really expensive. Not something that they would have wasted in this in that day and age. Something we might waste today, but it wasn't something people in the ancient Middle East would have wasted. So it brings us to the third question. Why was perfume intended for Jesus' burial? So why was it intended for Jesus' burial? To understand that, we got to understand a little bit about burial customs of the Jewish people at this time. So it was not uncommon at that point in time for family or friends to spend enormous sums of money on strong perfumes and spices to mask the odor of a decaying body. You have to remember, embalming was not a customary practice worldwide at this point in time. Only select groups and cultures practice it at this point in time. It was not until the embalming science, the science of embalming, the science of dealing with with dead with, with dead bodies, became more evolved. That we started to embalm bodies, and you didn't have to put a whole bunch of perfumes and spices on a dead body. That would place in a open air tomb, a tomb that was above ground to mask the smell of a dead and decaying body. So knowing that knowing he was facing death soon, Jesus saw parallel between that custom and what Mary had done. He saw her act of love and devotion as something like a pre-anointing for his burial. And so he defended her once again by reminding his disciples and those, those that were at this banquet, this feast that Mary, Martha, and Lazarus gave for him of his approaching death. So now we come to the fourth and final question. Why not? or indifferent towards me, because remember we already said his entire ministry, his time on earth, was spent devoted to helping those uh, that society of that day cast out, those that were marginalized, 
those that were outside the norms of society, those that were the poor and the neediest of the ancient Jewish society. So what he was simply saying was that there was little time left for his followers to express their love to him and for him. Therefore, they uh, and they could and should always help the poor, but the expenditure, this enormous expenditure, was justified on this occasion because it was done as a way of glorifying God and not for glorifying man, which should be the supreme way that all of our actions are judged. <coughs> Pick up your tomorrow. We move further into John's account of Holy Week with Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. In order to be in Jesus from the dead is 
therefore, brothers and sisters, we have an obligation, but it is not to the flesh to live according to it. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the myth, <coughs> the misdeeds of the body you will live. For those who are led by the Spirit of God are the children of God. The Spirit you receive does not make you slaves. So that you live in fear again, whether the Spirit you received brought about your adoption of sonship. And by Him we cry, Our Father. The Spirit Himself testifies with our spirit <coughs> that we are God's children. Now, if we are children, then we are heirs, heirs of God and co-heirs with Christ. If indeed we share in his sufferings, in order that we may also share in his glory. So, we see the Paul depicts two types of people. Those who are full of selfish desires that come from their rebellious natures, and those who live by the guidance and power of the Holy Spirit. See in this passage three hugely important things. The first thing we see is to, li is that to live according to the sinful nature, is to desire, take pleasure in, be occupied with, and try to satisfy the corrupt desires of sinful human nature. Sexual living includes immoral behavior. Selfish ambition, jealousy, hatred, drunkenness, outbursts, <coughs> outbursts of anger, and or choices of behavior that do not please God. So we'll talk about that. that those are things like obscenity, pornography, drug addiction, mental and uh, emotional pleasure from sexual images and plays and magazines. And television. Those types of things all have a powerful hold on countless people's lives, and they're all things that you need to get rid of. So the second thing we see is that in accordance with the Spirit, is to pursue and submit to the Holy Spirit's guidance and direction, and to rely on His to live as God desires. It means focusing one's attention, thoughts, energy, and values on God's desires and God's purposes. This requires keeping a constant awareness of God's presence and trusting Him to provide the help and power needed to accomplish His will, which is His desires, His plans, and His intentions based on His character and his purposes. And so the third and final thing that we see is that it is impossible to follow the sinful nature and the Holy Spirit at the exact same time. So what we see is that those who resist the Spirit's power and assistance and rely on their own ability are Choosing to become God's enemies. They can expect spiritual and eternal death. Those who make God's desires and their purposes their primary passion and concern can expect eternal life and companionship with God. 
So let me make one thing very, very clear here, right? Because I'm sure this is, will cause a great deal of misunderstanding among quite a lot of you. Right, so let me make one thing very, very clear. If you are saved, in other words, if you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Lord and Savior, you cannot lose that. Nothing you do can take that away from you. So what I'm saying is very simply this. Once you are saved, you are always saved. There is no going back. There is no well. You've decided to turn your back on God, so now you won't be saved. Now you're gonna go to hell. No, 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 no. Once you have accepted Jesus Christ as your personal Savior, you are His forever and ever and ever. <coughs> so what we're told here is that in essence, those who have rejected God's offer of salvation through His Son, Jesus Christ, and you have chosen to live their lives their own way, will suffer the consequences. They may not suffer the consequences in this life, but they will suffer the consequences eventually. However, those of us who have chosen to be followers of Christ can still choose to ignore God and the prompting of His Spirit, which simply means that we want to live out His purpose and His desires Christian.com. Again, that's upstatechristian.com. 
come. So we're now into day 153 of Arthur the Bible in one year segment. And so our focus is on a little short passage in John chapter 12. That would be John chapter 12 verses 12 through 19. So what we saw yesterday, June the 2nd, was we saw Jesus anointing in Bethany by Mary. And today we come to Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So it is his entry into Jerusalem on the final time that sparks the events that will lead to the fulfillment of his mission while he was here on earth. That mission was his death, burial, and resurrection, which in turn resulted in our ability to be saved and to have our sins forgiven. So let's pick up in John chapter 12. So we're going to start in verse 12, and we're going to go through verse 13. This is what that says. The next day, the great crowd that had come for the festival heard that Jesus was on his way to Jerusalem. They took palm branches and went out to meet him, shouting, Hosanna, blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. Blessed is the King of Israel. So what we'll see, so we know for a fact, is that Jesus' entry into Jerusalem on Sunday is narrated in all four Gospels. So it's narrated in Matthew, it's narrated in Mark, it's narrated in Luke, and now we have seen it narrated in John's Gospel. So it's in all four Gospels. So we see that a large crowd went out to meet him, waving palm branches as he approached the city. So the waving palm branches means that some recognize Jesus to be something of a national hero. So we're going to leave that right there for now, because we're going to come back and deal with that in more detail when we get through going through the basics of this particular section. So in Christian history, this day has become known as Palm Sunday because of the waving of palm branches that was done. So the crowd's excitement is evident in their enthusiastic exultation. So many shouted out the words of Psalm 118, which is a royal psalm sung in thanksgiving for victory in battle. So while some of the crowd thought Jesus was the Messiah, many of them did not. So now we're going to pick up, we're going to go through the next two verses, which will take us through from verse 14 to verse 15. Jesus found a young donkey and sat on it. As it is written, do not be afraid, daughter of Zion, so your king is coming sitting on a donkey's coat. At first, his disciples didn't understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they did they realize that these things had been written about him and that these things had been done to him. So the focus of these two short little verses 
Elon Jesus. These verses depict what kind of king Jesus came to be. He intentionally entered the city on the back of a donkey, a symbolic act fulfilling Zechariah chapter 9, verse 9. And again, we're going to talk in more detail about that when we get all done. So, what we're going to say for right now is that many people anticipate a militaristic messiah riding into Jerusalem on the back of a white horse. But Jesus came instead as the Prince of Peace. Now, pick up in verse 16, and we're going to go through verse 19. So, here's what this, these last three, uh, excuse me, we're going to pick up in verse, let's see. So, yes, so we're going to go back and pick up, we're going to pick up in verse 16 and go through verse 19. Uh, which says, at first his disciples didn't understand all of this. Only after Jesus was glorified did they realize that these things had been written about him, and that these things had been done to him. Now the crowd that was with him when he called Lazarus from the tomb, and raised him from the dead, continued to spread the word. Many people, because they had heard what, that he had performed this sign, went out to meet him. So the Pharisees said to one another, See, this is getting us nowhere. Look how the whole world has gone after him. So we see here that John describes how various groups responded to Jesus' entry into Jerusalem. <coughs> so we also see the disciples saw these events unfolding, but they didn't understand their true meaning until after Jesus' glorification. So those who had been present when Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead continued to talk about that miracle because it really and truly was a miracle, and it really and truly proved that Jesus is who he says he is. Gotta understand that. I keep mentioning that because that's key. We already know Lazarus was dead dead. We already talked about that. We already talked about the fact that this proved definitively that Jesus who is who he says he is. We also see that others who heard of the raising of Lazarus who went out to greet Jesus. And that when the Pharisees saw enthusiasm for a man that had brought him back from the dead. They felt utterly completely frustrated because they put an end. So now that we have discussed in general what has happened during Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem, let's deal with some things in greater detail. And we're going to deal with that by answering, by addressing the two big questions that arise out of Jesus' triumphal entry into Jerusalem. So the first one is, why did Jesus participate in this procession? And the second one is, why did Jesus ride a donkey and not a horse? So the first question is, why did Jesus even bother to participate in this procession? 
So to answer that question, let's, let's go. Are you ready? Hope you're ready. If you're not, be ready. So what we see is that she's at the climax of his ministry. He's making a very public identity statement that proclaimed who he was. The son of God. Oh, excuse me, the son of David. The king of kings and the conqueror of sin and sickness. So as we know, conquering generals at that time were given a triumphal entry upon their return to their home city. And we know that palm branches were often waved during such times of celebration and victory. And we also see that this procession caused the city that was already crowded with people for the Passover to consider Jesus' claims about himself. So Jesus participated in this procession because it was a big, big public way of identifying himself to the eyes of the, in the eyes of people, who he truly was. So the second question we got to answer, this one will take a little bit longer, because this is where things get really, really good. As you see, he participated in this procession to show the people that yes, he is the King of Kings, yes, he is the Son of David, yes, he is the conqueror of sin and sickness. But now we have to answer the second question, why didn't Jesus ride a donkey? Why didn't he ride a horse? So what we see, what we know and understand, is that in the ancient Middle Eastern world, donkeys and mules were often associated with leaders. So by riding this young colt, however, Jesus demonstrated his humility and greatness. He also fulfilled vividly one of the prophecies of the Messiah. However, there's another reason Jesus rode a donkey to Jerusalem during his triumphal entry. That reason is in the ancient Middle Eastern world leaders rode horses if they rode to war, but donkeys if they came in peace. So we see First Kings, uh, chapter one, verse thirty-three, mentions Solomon riding a donkey on the day he was recognized as the king of Israel. So that's the day that David named Solomon as his successor, as his successor to being king over all of Israel. So Solomon rode a donkey because he came in peace. He wasn't coming to conquer what was already conquered, what was already his. So the mention of a donkey in Zechariah chapter 9 verses 9 to 10 fixed the description of a righteous king and uh, of the king who would be of a king who would be righteous and having salvation gentle. So rather than writing to conquer, this king would enter in peace. So let's flip over to Zechariah chapter 9 and see what exactly we are talking about here. Right. So that's the part we saw 
John quote when he in Zechariah nine nine. Night so rejoice greatly, daughter of Zion. Shout, daughter of Jerusalem. See your king comes to you righteous and victorious, lowly and riding on a donkey. On a colt. The foal of a donkey. Verse ten. And the war horses from Jerusalem. And the he will proclaim to the nations, his rule will extend from sea to sea, and river to the ends of the earth. So what we see is that Zechariah 9.10 highlights this piece when it says, I will take away the chariots from Ephraim, from Jerusalem, and the battle bow will be broken. He will proclaim peace to the nations, his rule will extend from sea to sea, and from the river to the ends of the earth. Here are the many details symbolic of peace. So the first one we see is uh, that he will take away the chariots. So he will put an end to the main vehicle of war, which would be chariots in the time of Zechariah, and it would still somewhat be chariots at the time of Jesus, and today it would be the equivalent of a battle tank, of a main battle tank. The second detail symbolic of peace is that he says he will take away the war horses, so there would be no need for horses to be used in war, which in other words he's going to take away not only the main vehicle of war, the the main vehicle of war, the main battle tank. He's gonna take away everything that is used to transport people to the battle front. The third thing we see is that the battle bow will be broken, so there'll be no need for bows and arrows for fighting. So he's gonna take away the main means of fighting at a distance. It could be a rifle today, it could be an airplane today. It could be whatever you want to, to say for today. But he came to take away the main weapon in fighting a battle. So the fourth thing we see is that he will proclaim peace to the nations. In other words, his message will be one of reconciliation. And not of dividing. And the fifth and final thing we'll see is that his rule shall be from sea to sea. So we see that the king who comes that Zacharias is talking about will extended territories with no enemies of concern. So who else who else but Jesus could fulfill this prophecy of Zechariah? The worldwide peace proclaimed by this humble king will be a fulfillment of the angel's song in Luke chapter 2, verse 14, which says, Glory to God in the highest, and on earth peace, goodwill toward men. For you see, Jesus came not as a conquering general, whose aim was to destroy and subjugate, but as the ruling and reigning sovereign, who has come to restore peace to a world that is in desperate need of restoration.
Why? Jesus came riding on a donkey and not on a big powerful war horse because Jesus didn't need to come to conquer what was already his. He simply came to restore peace and order to what was already his. And we'll pick up from there tomorrow as we continue on with John's brief account of Holy Week. In order, and in order for you to be prepared to talk about that and to discuss that, here's what you need to read. <coughs> you need to read Second Samuel chapter 21 verse 1 through 23 verse 23. Acts chapter 2, Psalm 122, verses 1 through 9, and Proverbs 16, verses 19.